This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm very excited to welcome and introduce our guest today, Robert D. Kaplan. Robert D. Kaplan is the Robert Strauss Hupe Chair in Geopolitics at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He was twice named one of the world's top 100 global thinkers by foreign policy. A reporter with decades of experience writing for The Atlantic, he has written 21 books and is the author of The Tragic Mind, Fear, Fate, and the Burden of Power with Yale University Press. I'm very excited to speak further with you today about The Tragic Mind. Welcome, Robert, to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Claire. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Let us first start with um, telling, if you could tell our listeners what your main concern in this text is, and perhaps talk further about the qualities of The Tragic Mind. Yes. Um, Most books sympathize with individuals, with victims. I mean, that's what journalists mainly do. This This is a very different book. I'm sympathizing with those in power who have to make difficult decisions, who have bureaucratic authority. Um, who are not just, um, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger had a great statement in his first book written when he was in his 20s. He said, policy, statesmanship is about combining with what is just with what is possible. And what is just depends on the moral requirements of your own society. But what is possible means taking into account the morality of other societies that you have to deal with sometimes or even at war with. And so what is just is not always what is possible. Um, And that is kind of what I'm dealing with today and in this book. And I'm doing it through tragedy. And tragedy, as I define in this book, is not what you think it is. And that's what the book is all about, really. Tragedy is not common misfortune uh, on one hand, because that's the, the, the stuff of daily life. All of us have common misfortune. That's what li- life wouldn't be life without misfortune. And tragedy is also not vile crimes against humanity, like the Holocaust or Rwanda. They're vile crimes, period, of which Greek tragedy or Shakespearean tragedy would have nothing to do with. They have no solution for that, no answer to that. Rather, tragedy is something different. It's not. It's also not fatalism. Um, uh, it, it's about comprehension. It's about realizing what you could do when it's too late to affect the outcome. Tragedy is about, is, you know, is about, not about evil, not about good versus evil, but it's about one good versus another good that causes suffering. In other words, policymakers who I'm sympathizing with throughout this book have difficult choices to make. They don't balance good versus evil because that's often an easy decision. That's what journalists do. What policymakers do, they say, on the one hand, we could do this and it benefits this, that, and the other. On the other hand, we could do this, that, and the other. But but by choosing one of the two goods, somebody is going to suffer. 
And that's really, you know, gets to the root of what tragedy is about. Tragedy afflicts those in power. Yeah. And, and you've noted in, in The Tragic Mind that the greatest statesmen must think tragically, you know, a charge for statesmen. And you cite historic uh, examples of American figures with this tragic sensibility, you know, such as Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, are there politicians today that have strengthened their platform by thinking tragically? Yes. Uh, first of all, Lincoln, Lincoln in 1864 deliberately took the Civil War to Southern civilians it was a brutal, nasty war where a lot of civilians' homes were destroyed, people were killed, and Lincoln did that deliberately to end the war more to end the war more quickly. In other words, he was one good versus another good. It was the good of ending the war quit more quickly and decisively to end slavery. Uh, but it supplanted another good, which is being kind to civilians. So Lincoln clearly thought tragically. He was in a tragic mindset um, in that sense. Remember, Lincoln was a war leader. He was a very tough war leader. And because his side won, we revere him today. FDR, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, made an alliance with Stalin, a mass murderer, to defeat Hitler, another mass murderer. Remember, Lend-Lease was not just about helping Britain with armaments. Uh, it was about helping the Soviet Union with our armaments. And this was the same Soviet Union that had killed several Ukrainians in the terror famine of the 1930s. And everybody knew that essentially, or many people knew that. So FDR and Lincoln both had a real tragic sensibility. Um, you know, they had to make binary choices that, you know, you know that most, most of us just, just as spectators don't have to do. Um, do any leaders today have the tragic sensibility and have they exercised it? I would say we're seeing that in Ukraine right now. Because on the one hand, President Joe Biden is sending massive billions and billions of dollars of armaments to the Ukrainians to help them defend themselves against, against Putin's Russia. But on the other hand, there are many armaments the Ukrainians are asking for that Biden is not giving them, even though it could help them win the war, because Biden is evidently thinking tragically. He doesn't want the war to spread to involve NATO countries. He doesn't want tactical nuclear weapons introduced by the Russians. He's thinking tragically, so he's not giving the Ukrainians everything that they want. And that is frustrating many supporters of Ukraine. But, you know, this is a clear case of one good supplanting another good that could prolong the war and that causes suffering. But this is what leaders deal with all the time. Yeah, that's a great answer. And, you know, I had a question on um, the war in Ukraine, um, especially because most of, I think, what uh, people who are in the U.S. who are interpreting news, they have 
seen I, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, doom scrolling has been has been an everyday occurrence for us. And I'm wondering if you have any advice, not only for statesmen to think tragically, but for everyday Americans to think tragically in how to deal specifically with chaos, terror, and war in the news. Um, because your book, from what I've read of it, has a hopeful edge as well. It's not only yes. about um, kind of the, the common interpretation of tragedy as, as doom. And so I'm wondering it, it, if you could speak to that. It's very hopeful. And it and it and it's hopeful because what I'm recommending, what wise leaders do, or I'm both recommending what wise leaders should do, and I'm describing what they already do, uh, which is to think tragically, which means to employ anxious foresight, to look five steps ahead, to fear, to have fear, to husband fear, to love fear, because the things we're really afraid of often don't happen to us because we take steps to prevent it precisely because we're afraid of it. So it's the things we fear that often don't happen or don't happen as badly. Whereas the things we don't fear that we're not even thinking about is what often hits us over the head and, you know, and leaves us very surprised. So it's a matter of marshalling fear without being immobilized by it that leads to better statesmanship. And I think um, average people do this all the time in their daily lives. They worry about their children infinitely. You know, you know, they, uh, uh, they, they, you know, they worry about their income. Uh, they're always thinking tragically. What if this happens and that happens? What should I do? What I'm doing is I'm taking that basic common sense and showing how the Greeks and Shakespeare and others um, like Melville, uh, Camus, dealt with it, how they defined it abstractly, what people do, what, what we think of as, as common sense can be described abstractly and philosophically. And so it's a hopeful book in that sense. Um, you know, my aim as I write in the book, in the preface, is to inspire, you know, not to depress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm also wondering how, um, you know, this hopeful edge came from your own experiences. And um, you note your own encounter with the tragic mind during your reporting on the Iraq war. And I'm wondering if you can tell us how your career in reporting influenced the writing of this book and also its, its, hopeful, um, its hopeful edge. Yes. Uh, my career in reporting uh, uh, basically um, Get, you know, basically made me write this book. You know, it provided the impetus for it. I'm not a classic scholar. I'm a layman who reads, you know, who reads the great works of literature as a layman, but with 40 years of experience as a foreign correspondent. And w one of those experiences was I was in Iraq several times when Saddam Hussein was in power. And it was uh, by far the worst regime that I had ever experienced, with the exception of Nikolai Ceausescu's regime in Romania at about the same time. These were the real demons. Saddam Hussein and Ceausescu were the demons of my early years as a foreign correspondent, you know, when I was based in Greece. And Iraq's, uh, Saddam's Iraq was so fearful, so terrifying, that I could not imagine anything worse there. You know, what could be worse than such an oppressive order? 
And then I found out that something actually could be worse. When I went back to Iraq with U.S. Marines after we invaded and, and was in a and and was a, um, a spectator at the first Battle of Fallujah in April 2004 and following the Marines throughout Anbar province west of Baghdad. And I saw something that was worse than Saddam's tyranny. It was absolute chaos. That regime, that absolute chaos, anarchy, is worse than tyranny. As a Persian scholar that I quote in the preface and later on in the book um, says, so there was. So I couldn't. I supported the war against Iraq because against Saddam because I couldn't imagine anything worse. And then I came face to face with something worse, um, and that really, um, really had a profound effect on me. That helped uh, inspire me to write this book. Um, you know, the great philosophers have dealt with the dismal issue of tyranny and anarchy for decades and centuries and millennia. But to actually come face to face with it, in, you know, in the flesh, the tyranny of Saddam and the anarchy afterwards is life changing. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, it you know, Iraq was not an abstraction to me. It was something very, very real. And so and that and that was one of the things that influenced me to write this book, you know, to see what the ancient Greek philosopher tragedians had to say about it, to see what Shakespeare had to say. And some of the great modern novelists like Conrad Dostoevsky, Melville and others. Yeah, thank you for sharing your your personal experience of anarchy. And I know that in the book, you've noted that the Greeks in particular developed an aversion to anarchy and tried to prevent it. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us about your fascination with Dionysus, especially the kind of flavor of anarchy in, in his story and myth. And, um, you know, what role does that play in your book? Yes. Um, the Greeks had a fear of anarchy a great fear of anarchy. And that's because the Greeks were too rational um, to ignore the irrational that lay on the other side of civilization. And, and in other words, because they were so rational, they knew that there was a, a great side of the world that was not rational and they faced up to it and they feared it and they realized that that's the world. There's nothing you can do about it um, in a way. And so the Greeks worst fear was the irrational, was chaos, was anarchy. And the Greeks had a god who represented this. Now, Dionysus is a very complex god. You know, he represents a lot of things that you will see. But one of the things that he represented was disorder and chaos and, and fanaticism. And Euripides, uh, one of the three great um, uh Greek, ancient Greek tragic writers, along with Aeschylus and Sophocles, uh, wrote, a, uh, wrote a play about it. It was called The Bacchae, and he wrote it, and Euripides wrote it when he was an old man living in Macedonia. And The Bacchae 
were essentially, and they went by other names as well. There were women frenzied with wine, uh, with wine drinking, and they acted very irrationally in large groups. They tore apart animals, they killed people, all of this. And they were led by Dionysus. Um, and as the play progresses, what happens is that the leader of, you, you know, you know, the leader in charge does not fear Dionysus very much. He doesn't show him respect. And as a result, him, his loved ones, whatever, are put into a trance and they end up killing people innocently, you know, or they end up suffering from, you know, uh, from, uh, from the frenzy of the, of the Bacchae, of, of these women. And at the end, Dionysus is triumphant. He has made his point. He has called, created tragedy. And this is the Greek saying, we don't like chaos. We don't like anarchy. We prefer a world with order. And our great plays will always be about order, order being challenged, being defeated, and then the restitution of a new order. But at the same time, we, we know this, we know that the best defense against anarchy and irrationality is to respect it, to know that it exists, that, you know, the world is not just a world of people who are all rational, having arguments with each other in perfect sentences, you know. Um, um, and we see this in history often, you know, as I point out the, you know, the, you know, the, the, um, the Serbian war criminals, the, the Russian war criminals, the, um, the Nazis, you know, you know, the Nazi marches, um, you know, the sectarian death squads in anarchy driven Iraq, etc., all have elements of this Dionysian, this Dionysian flavor to them. And they're all, they're all examples of how they're, you know, we should, because we're rational, we should understand there will always be forces on the other side of rationality that we have to defend against. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on recent internal conflicts or anarchy within the United States, for example, like the U.S. Capitol attacks on January 6th, 2021, or even abroad now, um, specifically um, in uh, Latin America, um, for, you know, for example, recent protests in Brazil by Bolsonaro supporters. How might we interpret these instances um, and think about them tragically? And also in Peru, where there's been a lot of violence um, as well. It's not just it's not just Brazil, but there's also Peru, which is a very different kind. But still, it's an example uh, of what you're getting at. And um, again, this you know, in terms of the United States, though, uh, the elite is so rational, you know, so practical minded, so uh, so logical that it completely ignored the illogicalness that existed on the other side of logic that, pe you know, um, that people have, so that they were blindsided by Trump in 2016. Uh, you know, nobody, you know, as, as somebody said, he could never win. He's just too weird. You know, he could never be elected president, kind of. Well, you saw what happened. And January 6th was a side of this, um, was, was an aspect I should say of this Dionysus-like quality of of um, 
of chaos and anarchy because it wasn't and precisely because it wasn't so well planned it was more of a riot than it was an organized attempt uh, you know, a, a highly organized attempt to take over the Capitol building. And that, you know, the elite has to watch out because there are always forces, uh, you know, on the, uh, you know, you know, if, if the elite doesn't, you know, you know, doesn't govern with, with, with this fear, because remember, the book's all about being fear oriented, uh, you know, you're using fear constructively. If the elite doesn't govern with fear, doesn't make constructive use of fear, this kind of thing will happen from time to time. Thank you for that. Um, uh, the next question is uh, just an, an interest of mine, actually. That, and I wanted to know if, um, you know, you touch on tragedy in, in tales from the ancient world and from Europe, you know, from Shakespeare to Euripides. We've kind of talked about some of them, but I'm wondering if there are non-Western plays or epics or stories that also fascinate you. Oh, you know, obviously you will, you will find this, you know, not just in Western civilization, but in others. I concentrated on the Western canon in this book because mm -hmm. I spent my early years as a foreign correspondent in Greece and so I got interested in the ancient Greeks. And when I read like the great classicists like Edith Hamilton and they compared the Greek tragedy writers with Shakespeare, I then got interested in Shakespeare. And it's basically, you know, as, as, as Hamilton and Hegel said, because I also deal with the modern Germ German philosophers, that, you know, there were four great tragedians in history. Uh, three of them were Greek. Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. And the fourth, of course, was Shakespeare. And that's basically what this book is about, what it mm -hmm. deals with. But I totally recognize that there are other sides, you know, other civilizational sides uh, as well that I'm less familiar with that I didn't research a book about. Uh, for instance, the Indians have a great political philosopher, Kautila, who, um, who came up with Machiavelli's philosophy, I think like a thousand years before Machiavelli, mm. you know, um, essentially. So that's just one example. Uh, you know, and Machiavelli was all about order, preserving order, and what a leader had to do to preserve order. And so did Cautilla, you know. Um, so, you know, th 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 this exists in, in other civilizational realms as well. Great. Thanks so much for answering that curiosity of mine. Um, and, you know, one of my last questions is that we have talked um, about kind of a prerequisite for thinking tragically, um, you know, life experience. And since we all in some ways, you know, across um, geopolitical boundaries and whatnot, we all have to experience climate change. Do you have any thoughts on how we might adopt tragic thinking um, in the realm of policy to to cope and, and understand the world in the midst of a climate crisis? Well, yes, I deal with climate change a bit in The Tragic Mind. And I quote a great uh, environmentalist and novelist, um, Amitav Ghosh, who's Indian born, you know, lives between India and the United States. And 
he he wrote a book for the University of Chicago Press, essentially saying that the Earth is just toying with us, that we're not thinking tragically about the Earth, that we happen to be alive during a period, a, ver- a very strange period, when when the climate uh, is suited for Homo sapiens, and Homo sapiens can survive can survive in it. And particularly, he points out that people who live in urban settings in the West, particularly, have their lives so well ordered, everything works perfectly, that the idea of a real climatic disruption is very rare, you know, and it's something people don't think about. But, you know, Gosh goes back to the sense that the earth is toying with us. You know, you know, there have been long periods lasting millennia you know, eons uh, in in Earth's history when the climate was different. And we may be headed into that period as well, which is going to seriously disrupt civilization. So so to just think that the climate will more or less stay the same and, and what climate change is all about is really some slight variations, that's not thinking tragically, you know? Uh, uh, you know, you know, thinking tragically extends to that as well. Great. Uh, thanks so much. Um, I think we've covered a lot in a short period of time. And um, I'm wondering if there's anything else, you know, that you would like our readers to know about your book um, before they pick it up and b- before we end this episode. Well, it's a short book. You know, um, it, you know, it's, it, it, you know, it's quite short, but it, it packs a lot of discussion about not just the Greeks and Shakespeare, but people like Melville and Giuseppe de Lambedusa it's, uh, and others, and, and about Camus, you know, and about, um, and about, you know, Camus' dictum that it's immoral just to topple a tyrant without having a plan in place to replace him, you know? Um, and, and, and because order is still the first prerequisite. And this is Camus, a French intellectual, saying this. And Camus brings up uh, Herman Melville's Billy Budd as a short, you know, a short novel that's an example of this lesson. So there's a lot in the book beyond what we talked about. Yeah, I think that... Um... Our listeners and as they get converted into readers will really um, appreciate the rich discussions that you have in the book. Um, and, you know, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us about, you know, some of your personal experiences with tragedy and also current events. Um, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah. So The Tragic Mind, Fear, Fate, and the Burden of Power is now available wherever books are sold. And to the listener, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.